0: Welcome to Politics is Everything, the podcast of the Center for Politics at the University of Virginia. I'm Kara Ong-Whaley. Since the Supreme Court's 2022 Dobbs ruling, seven states—California, Kansas, Kentucky, Michigan, Montana, Ohio, and Vermont—have voted on ballot measures that relate directly or indirectly to reproductive rights. Reproductive rights advocates have come out on the winning side in all seven of those votes. Miles Coleman joins us to discuss the first installment of his analysis on how these initiatives fared relative to other elections in Kansas, Michigan, and Ohio. Hi Miles, thanks for joining us. Um, I wonder if you can talk a little bit about um, how you went about your analysis.
1: So this happened to be one of the questions that uh, we got asked by a reporter. They give us some very good ideas sometimes. Um, and they're asking to the show how like the Ohio vote last week uh, stacked up to, say, the Senate race last year. Where did it run most ahead or behind of a Democrat or Republican? And we were like, well, that's a good question. We really don't know. It kind of depends. So um, that was the whole thrust of this, is you know, we talk a lot about how, uh, you know, especially with some of these big ticket referendums like we've been seeing throughout the past year or so. Um, you even things like judicial races, you know yes, uh, we were here a few months ago talking about the Wisconsin Supreme Court race, right? Uh, even that, yes, those are getting more partisan and nationalized, but you' know, not everything from a judicial or a ballot measure is going to translate cleanly over to a Democrat versus Republican race. That said, the temptation to compare them is very much there because oftentimes um, you know, one media narrative, for instance, that probably has some truth to it is uh, you know because the abortion rights referent, uh, the abortion rights advocates are winning all these states. Now we uh, we only did three today, but I think it's a good range because we had. Uh, Kansas and Ohio, which are you know Republican-leaning states in most elections, and we had Michigan, which was more of a marginal to Democratic-leaning state. It, it it won uh, the the uh, pro-abortion rights side won in all of those those states. So we were wondering just how um, how those results would compare to the ordinarily Democratic versus Republican races. Uh, you know, I said this in the article but talking about some uh the caveats about how oh well you well you can't always directly compare our 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 referendum to a partisan race something to keep in mind here too is you know with our federal system you know some states don't even allow these type of ballot questions um and kind of going with that is all these um All the abortion rights votes in these states are all worded a little differently, right? The timing even was a little different. Some are held with a general election. Some are held at a different time. So, um, you know, it's hard to get like a, you know, one sort of baseline for everything. Um, But I think we tried.
0: <laughs> Why don't you share a little bit about what you found in Michigan? Because that is one case, especially this week, where it did, where the referendum did occur at the same time as the gubernatorial race um, in November of 2022. Um, so, what was the wording um, on that ballot? Um, because I think that does matter in Michigan, and then also, how did Governor Whitner perform relative to Proposal Three in the November 2022 election?
1: Yeah, so in in Michigan, um, or after the Dobbs ruling last year, Michigan was set to have this sort of very strict 1930s era abortion ban that was going to go into place. Um, that kind of got, you know, there was some litigation um, that sort of got into somewhat of legal limbo Um But what Proposition 3 was going to do is, uh, if passed, it was going to basically enshrine language in the state constitution that uh, language on reproductive rights and abortion and all that stuff. So, uh, So unlike the other two states that we looked at in this article, Kansas and Ohio, Um, the pro-abortion rights position was yes, not no. In other states, the abortion rights advocates were rejecting something. Uh, So there's been some research that we've, I think we've mentioned in some crystal ball articles that, you know, sometimes it's more advantageous to be on the kind of status quo no side in these things. But in Michigan, it was yes. So Governor Whitmer won re-election by about ten and a half, eleven 11 points. Um, the yes on Proposal 3 did a little better. It won by closer to 13 points. Um, so you know, m- most of the counties lined up, right, the vast majority of Whitmer's counties, but also voted for the Proposition uh, 3, uh, not all voters make clean distinctions between Democrat, Republican, pro-life, pro-choice. Uh, but anyway, what I found is they won by similar margins overall. Um, what I found was Whitmer really ran ahead of uh, Proposal Three um, in areas that have a high number of minority voters. Uh, the um, what I was sort of surprised at. Um, is especially in the Midwest, we talk about distinctions, but between the um, working class white areas and really the more upscale white areas. Uh, Well, in both those with both of those kind of white voters, um, the yes on amendment, uh, the, the yes on proposal three did better than what Gretchen Whitmer got, which was sort of surprising. There wasn't much of a distinction there. Um, In fact, it ran most, um, you know, it ran pretty far ahead of her, relatively speaking, um, on the Upper Peninsula, which is historically more democratic, very, very working class. Uh, And it also ran ahead of her um, in some of the suburban areas of Detroit. Um, So... Uh, that, to me, was not quite what I expected. Um, Whitmer's best county overall compared to pr- Proposed 03 uh, was Wayne County, which is Detroit. Um, and you, you 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 have about a 40% black population there. And um, just looking at Detroit proper, of course, Whitmer carried it very much. Um, the amendment passed by a pretty big margin too, uh, but it still ran about 24 points behind Whitmer. So that was sort of interesting. You know, that could be um, you know, maybe some voters skipping the uh ballot because proposal three was a bit further down. Um, or, you know, you just could have uh um some of those minority voters who are just more socially conservative, although they vote Democrat in most of most elections. Other areas where Whitmer performed well, the kind the right next to Detroit, um, was the city of Dearborn, which has a large Arab population. So you have a little bit of that as well. Um, so it's it's um, uh, very interesting source, sort of dynamics there. Um, and I thought what was interesting is um, uh, That uh, Whitmer also did better in Grand Rapids, which is Kent County. Uh, That was her opponent, uh, uh, Tudor Dixon's home area. So, not what I expected.
0: So, looking ahead to 2024, and you may have a better sense of this after you've looked at the other states next week, but as we look into 2024, are there any lessons that you think can be learned in terms of? voting on the referenda versus uh, how candidates performed in these states?
1: Yeah, it's, it's uh, you know, what I thought was interesting kind of state of Michigan is, you know, they both passed by about the same uh, margin overall, Whitmer and proposal Three. You know, but as we show, there's quite a bit of difference. So, you know, sometimes voters just don't behave as you would expect. Uh, Right, I would just say for the political parties, they can't take, you know, just because Democrats are doing well in or the pro reproductive rights side is doing well in this, uh, don't assume that all those voters are going to vote for Democrats, right? So it's, and that kind of goes for the Republicans too, is you know, even though Ohio, for instance, voted down. Issue one. I'm still very much expecting Trump to uh, carry the state because the minority turnout in Ohio was bad last week. And you saw that in 2022 as well. He's like, yeah. well, one of his contacts said that the, the uh, anti issue one people didn't really focus on those areas because they thought the suburbs were going to be enough to basically carry it, which it did. But that's still a problem that the Democrats need to to, uh, fix next year. So, you know, that's why I say not to get complacent.
0: Yeah. Yeah, that's such a good point. Well, Miles, thank you so much for sharing your analysis with us. Listeners, there's a link to the new piece, The Atlas of the Post-Dobbs Abortion Referendums, Part 1, in the episode notes. And coming up next, we speak with Dr. Craig Holman about the rulemaking power that the Federal Elections Commission has to regulate generative artificial intelligence in political ads. Stay with us. Hi, I'm Marina George. I'm a second year graduate student at the Batten School for Leadership and Public Policy. It's
2: wonderful to be here.
0: Hi, I'm Keshav Hazanamis. I'm a rising junior at Eastern College and I'm doing some research work in the Center of Politics this summer.
2: Hi, I'm Craig Holman. I'm the Government Affairs Lobbyist for Public Citizen here on Capitol Hill.
0: Dr. Holman, thank you so much for taking the time and sharing your expertise on campaign finance and reform and government ethics uh, with us. Um, we are specifically... Delighted to speak with you about the rulemaking power or attempting to get the Federal Elections Commission to use its rulemaking power um, to address the anticipated onslaught of deep fakes as we head into the 2024 election season.
2: Glad to be here.
0: We are already seeing the use of generative AI ads for the 2024 election cycle. In previous discussions we've had here on politics is everything, we've heard from experts that we are essentially going to have to rely on social safety nets. For example, journalists catching and reporting the use of gen AI, given the lack of regulatory regime around its use. Can you begin by sharing why it's important to take action now and why Public Citizen is calling for a pause on generative AI until strong safeguards are in place? And following that, what do these safeguards look like, perhaps specifically looking within the context of elections?
2: Public Citizen realized there's going to be a big problem with the 2024 campaign right after uh, President Biden announced his re-election effort for the 2024 elections. Immediately after that, we saw for the very first time the RNC produced an entirely fabricated uh, artificial intelligence ad, and this ad was breathtaking and almost indistinguishable from reality.
1: This just
0: in: we can now call the 2024 presidential race for Joe Biden.
2: This morning, an emboldened China invades Taiwan. Financial markets are in free fall as 500 regional banks have shuttered their doors. Border agents were overrun by a surge of 80,000 illegals yesterday evening.
0: Officials closed the city of San Francisco this morning, citing the escalating crime and fentanyl crisis. Who's in charge here? It feels like the train is coming off the tracks.
2: And, you know, it was entirely fabricated. None of this ever happened. And, you know, when CNN did a survey of some of the viewers of this ad, many of the viewers thought it was real. You know, they thought, oh, my God, what's, what's Biden doing in San Francisco? You know, having, locking down the entire city. And at that point, you know, we realize this is going to be a big problem in 2024 uh, because there are no regulations and very, very little legislation that addresses the problem. So we started exploring, how can we deal with this quickly? Some good bills have been introduced. Uh, Representative Clark has introduced a great bill, Senator Klobuchar has introduced a great bill, but those, that legislation is moving very slowly and probably isn't going to be in place before the 2024 elections. So we thought if we can get the Federal Election Commission to do rulemaking, that could be a little more expedient. You know, however, the FEC only has limited authority. It needs statutory authority to require things like full disclosure or or to ban defects. And it doesn't really have that. What it does have is a law called fraudulent misrepresentation, where it is illegal for a candidate or a candidate's agent or a political party to depict the opponent doing or saying something that he or she would never do uh, and damage that candidate. I'm mean, Basically a fundamental lie about the candidate. The problem is the regulation that addresses fraudulent misrepresentation doesn't address artificial intelligence. This is new. And so we have petitioned the FEC saying, okay, revisit the regulation on fraudulent misrepresentation and make it clear that uh, deep fake ads are included within that restriction. Now that that can mean one of two things, by the way. Uh, You know, the FEC could just come out with a disclosure requirement uh, saying that if a campaign ad is going to use artificial intelligence At least it has to disclose that this is not real, you know, in a clear and conspicuous manner. But the other avenue that the FEC could pursue, which is really what public citizens would like to see happen, is to make it illegal to uh, create an image of, say, Donald Trump saying or doing something that he would never, ever say or do, Uh, And and make that illegal under the fraudulent misrepresentation law. That's what we have petitioned for. And uh, finally, the FEC after being very reluctant, uh, they deadlocked the first time we filed a petition back in June and uh, the person leading the deadlock was uh, Republican Commissioner Alan Dickerson. And Alan Dickerson, you know, just argued we have no statutory authority to do this. We don't even know what code uh, it would address. And so they deadlocked and nothing happened. Well, I went back to the drawing table and found a memo that Alan Dickerson wrote saying that they do have statutory authority to address fraudulent misrepresentation, and he cited the specific code. So I added that as an an amendment uh, to the petition and refiled the petition. So the FEC on the second time around voted unanimously to open up public comment.
0: With with public commenting now opening, what should the public know about the rulemaking process? How can they make a comment to the FEC? Um, and, and what should they know about this process?
2: Uh, first of all, the comment period goes for 60 days once it opens and it opens as soon as the notice is published in the federal register and if i can add when it comes to the con- comment uh, itself the content of it uh actually you know we're we're hoping to get a, a huge wide you know breadth of issues that that the public deals with i am expecting to be able to get a lot of organizations and individuals, including Republicans, Republican organizations, to uh, file a comment saying, you know, yeah, I mean, you got to do something about those deep fakes because, you know, these, these are going to be used by everybody. If it won't just be used by, so far, mostly has been used by Republicans attacking Republicans, you know, first. Ron DeSantis ran a deep fake ad against uh, Trump showing Trump hugging uh, Dr. Fauci, which never happened. And then Trump got angry and he ran his own deep fake ad showing DeSantis visiting with George Soros, and that never happened. You know, so so far it's been Republicans battling Republicans. But once, once we get into the election, if it's not regulated, you can bet the Democrats are going to be every bit as good at using these deep fakes as Republicans. So I'm expecting in the comment period to get both Republicans and Democrats to sign on.
0: And this may be on to the purview of the focus of public citizen. But one of the things um, that I think is most challenging is that whether it's legislation or rulemaking, it will, it really can only apply to political candidates and campaigns. It's not going to apply to non-state actors outside of the United States um, or individual actors um, that, that might be using chatbots or um, uh, coordinated inauthentic behavior um, to go after candidates, do you see any sort of possibility for addressing um, deep fakes that emanate from uh, from sources other than, than candidates, campaigns, issue groups that, that you know are that, that have reporting requirements?
2: That's where we need legislation. I mean, even if the FEC came out with uh, the best rule they could uh, in response to our petition for rulemaking, as you pointed out it only will apply to candidates and party committees it won't apply to super PACs or outside groups and you know those are the entities that are going to abuse this most you know candidates will often tend to be a little shy when it comes to obviously lying because they can get caught outside groups could care less if they get caught lying so that's where the real problem is going to happen and we need legislation to address that as as uh we've noted earlier legislation has been introduced to do that both in, in congress both in the house and the senate and uh however you know it's it's a, a very slow slog at this point i mean i'm not expecting legislation to be passed in time for the 2024 election what i am expecting is that Democratic and Republican candidates alike, as well as the presidential candidates, are going to get hit hard with these types of deep fakes. And you know they're going to be most effective right before the election. The deep fakes, you know, one week, two weeks before the election date, you put those ads out there, and many in the American public are so gullible they're going to buy it. And it doesn't give the candidates time to say, hey, that's a lie. That never happened. And that's when we're going to see this wave of deep fakes happen. And once that happens, I, I really suspect Democrats and Republicans alike in Congress are going to say, okay, we can't wage an honest campaign without regulating these types of deep fakes. So, unfortunately, I think we're going to go through a very rough 2024 election. And what makes it worse, by the way, is that, you know, so many American voters are already losing faith in the electoral process. And, you know, they're going to go through an election, you know, saying, well, I voted because I saw that on TV. And, you know, someone pointed out, and we'll have to point out to them, it was a lie, it never happened. And what's that? going to do to the public's confidence in our electoral process.
0: Not only I voted because I saw that, uh, but also I didn't go out and vote (laughs) because I saw, you know, disinformation about a candidate I may have supported. We we know that happens as well. Um, Yeah, Dr. Holman, um, how widespread is the use of digital watermarking and fingerprinting currently within generative AI services? And by extension, how effective has... Uh, digital watermarking and fingerprinting been in monitoring the spread of misinformation within American politics thus far? Uh,
2: You know, we don't have, or I don't have numbers, and as far as I know, no one has numbers to actually document how widespread it is. We just have cases where uh, this has happened. It's such a new phenomenon that no entity has yet sat there and tried surveying you know, television ads and radio ads to document how frequently this happens. So I can't give you numbers, but I can tell you it's happening quite frequently, and it's going to be you know, very common when we get down to the election period itself. For instance, in the last mayoral race in Chicago that happened just just a little while ago, there was one candidate, Paul Vallis, running for mayor, and an ad came out showing Paul Vallis, perfect picture of him, using his voice saying that he condones police brutality in Chicago. He never said that. That wasn't him. I do know the DNC has used artificial intelligence for fundraising. So I can all I can tell you is that it's becoming increasingly common. And I suspect once we get down to the election date, it's going to be Uh, pervasive. By the way, I do want to add another effort to try to rein in the abuses before the 2024 election uh, that the public citizen is working on with others is to try to get some state regulations and laws on the books. Currently, three states make it illegal to use deep fakes, and that's California, Minnesota, and Washington. And what's interesting about those three states, too, is the law doesn't just apply to state elections. It applies to even federal elections. So if you get a super PAC that's going to run a deep fake against Joe Biden right before the election and they want to do it nationwide, they can't. They've got to exclude the California, Minnesota, and Washington. Now, if we can get, and there are at least a dozen other states that have legislation pending. If we can get, say, a dozen states out there with laws making it illegal to use deep fakes, that's really going to, you know, uh, be an obstacle uh, to these outside groups trying to use it at least in presidential elections. So we're focusing on the state level as well. We're trying to identify if state elections agencies like like the federal election agency, uh, has the authority to come up with rules and regulations addressing this. Uh, we haven't got a definite answer yet. We're still researching it. Each state had any state that has a law on the books, uh, to make something like that illegal, then the elections agency has the authority to regulate it. But there just don't seem to be that many laws on the books out there yet. Also, by the way, public opinion—I I, want to add that—you know, the public is only now starting to wake up to the threat of deep fakes to our our campaigns.
0: It's it's a little bit easier to track political ads relative to other forms of communication that candidates or campaigns or issue groups might release. Especially, I'm thinking of text messages and emails. Um, which we know that the campaigns can now use uh, large language models like ChatGPT, Bart, and others to micro-target voters, either to uh, mobilize, counter-mobilize, or even suppress voters. I wonder if you're thinking about anything that can be done to require transparency for these forms of digital communication so that we can have greater accountability in terms of what's being communicated to the public.
2: You know, that's a real problem. And that's also, by the way, why we can't so far have any count as to how many fake ads are out there. I mean, when it comes to TV ads, that's difficult enough to measure. But there's this entity called CMAG that actually follows television ads. So we can document that. But when you go into social media, I mean, social media has largely been unaccountable to, uh, you know, providing any kind of disclosure as to who's really behind these social media ads, let alone the content of it, to really address the whole problem. We need a, we need a full legislative vehicle to do that.
0: And um, lastly, Dr. Hellman, uh, I just wanted to ask you about, other than AI generated deep fakes, how do you see Generative AI influencing the upcoming 2024
2: election? What's going to have the big impact are going to be these deep fake ads just weeks before the election. When candidates and journalists and others don't have the... It can't quickly enough dispel the fact that that it never happened, that they were just fabricated. Uh, that's where these ads are going to have... the biggest impact.
0: Dr. Craig Holman from Public Citizen, thank you so much for joining us on Politics Is Everything.
2: Sure, it was a pleasure being here.
0: Listeners, you can find a link to the FEC's public comments in the episode notes. Hi, podcast listeners. Thank you so much for tuning in to this episode of Politics Is Everything. Editing and production was done by me, Kara ong Whitley. You can learn more about the Center for Politics and its work to strengthen democracy on our website at centerforpolitics.org. You can also engage with us on social media at Center Number 4 Politics. We welcome your suggestions and questions for future episode. Thanks so much for tuning in. Until next time.
2: This podcast is part of the Democracy Group,